0: Electric vehicles are older than what's become the modern internal combustion engine standard model, having initially arrived in the first half of the 19th century around the same time as early electric motors, which were the first means of converting electrical energy into mechanical energy, allowing electricity to make things move rather than just shocking people, making things glow, and sometimes setting stuff on fire. We didn't get something approximating the eventual modern iteration of an electric vehicle until later that century, when in 1859 the lead-acid battery was invented which allowed for the recharging of an electricity-storing piece of hardware rather than just the one-off use of something that then had to be replaced. So this is what made an electric vehicle feasible over time, the battery capable of being refilled with energy rather than serving as a one-time-then-it's-done sort of novelty. The lead-acid battery was massively improved upon in 1881. And these improvements allowed each battery to store far more electricity than previous iterations. And this, in turn, is what led to the mass production of these batteries. Earlier versions just weren't useful enough to justify production on scale. From that point forward, even that same year, inventors around the world, and especially in Europe, where much of this battery development was taking place, would strap these batteries and their accompanying electric motors to all sorts of things, from carriages to tricycles to boats. Consequently, the first real-deal electric vehicle with its own power source, the first outboard motor, and the first battery-powered rail car all arrived around the same time, between 1881 and 1887. For a long while after that, electric vehicles of all kinds and at all scales were used for work purposes, like pulling rail cars filled with coal from mines, and for traveling decent distances relatively capably, or short distances quite quickly. Over the next few decades, battery-powered taxis popped up in London and New York City, and early electric cars were preferred over competing internal combustion and steam-powered alternatives because they didn't require the long startup period suffered by the latter, and didn't require gear shifts, hand crank starts, or generate clouds of smelly gases like the former. In the year 1900, in the United States, about 40% of vehicles on the road were steam-powered, 38% were electric, and only 22% were powered by gasoline. It has been speculated that the ornate decorations and feminine-focused luxury marketing of the electric vehicles of this era may have contributed to this power source's decline in the overall U.S. automobile mix by a few decades later. But improvements to American roads, which reduced travel times and improved drivers' ability to travel great distances, which electric cars generally could not do, at least not at the same level as petroleum-powered cars, also likely played a role, as did the global near-simultaneous discovery of huge quantities of petroleum, which led to a boom in gas-powered everything, because these fossil fuels were abundant, cheap, and looking for customers. Eventually. Petroleum-powered automobiles became the norm because they could travel city to city rather than being limited by their relatively lackluster range to urban environments and because these new models of petroleum-powered cars could generally travel faster than their electric kin as well. Many electric vehicle companies either went out of business or transitioned over to making the, by many metrics, superior gas-powered cars from the 19-teens onward. But there was a resurgence of interest in electric models beginning in 1959 due to the development of a new type of battery based on nickel and cadmium, which allowed vehicles using them to be recharged a lot faster than lead-acid batteries while also weighing a whole lot less for the same energy capacity. Several concept cars, few being produced in a sellable quantity, were developed in the 1960s and 70s. But though electric car technologies and batteries continued to evolve during this period, nothing really caught on until General Motors mass-produced an electric coupe called the EV1 in the mid-to-late 1990s, producing just over a thousand of them for customers who genuinely seemed to love these cars before they were ultimately recalled. And most of them, which were leased instead of sold, were reclaimed from now quite unhappy customers who were pissed about that recall decision. And this decision largely seemed to be the consequence of GM realizing that this wasn't going to be a profitable niche for them. And it was also maybe related to a lawsuit brought by the major car companies in the U.S. against the state of California, which had tried to require that these car companies all make electric vehicle models for environmental reasons. But that successful counter-legal action on the part of these car companies watered down those requirements, allowing them to make a few more fuel-efficient cars and eventually hybrid cars instead of having to make electric vehicles. Now, that theory implies that GM pulled this electric model because it was more profitable for them to make somewhat more energy-efficient petroleum-powered cars instead, and they were now legally allowed to do that instead of having to invest more completely in these electric vehicles they were dabbling in. So while the 1990s could have been a decade, defined in part by a burgeoning electric vehicle market, had that California law stayed in place, Instead, we saw the deployment of a few, mostly unpopular, fuel-efficient cars, alongside a huge influx of newfangled sports utility vehicles, SUVs, which were exactly the opposite, increasingly energy-inefficient and highly emittive but very popular because of their size and bravado and perceived, if not always actual, tank-like safety. In the early 2000s, highway-capable electric cars started to be produced in small fits-and-starts quantities in the United States for the first time in ages. EVs were being produced stateside in the meantime, but most of the options post-early 21st century were similar to what the rest of the world has had in larger quantities since the middle of the 20th century. Namely, smaller, golf cart-sized vehicles that were slow, couldn't go very far, and were generally optimized for specific industry use cases, like, for instance, serving as golf carts, or for rickshaw-like taxi purposes. Tesla Motors, an EV company founded by a PayPal co-founder named Elon Musk, started up in 2004, though, and began delivering its first offering, the high-end Tesla Roadster sports car, in 2008. The Roadster was the first production-scale EV to use lithium-ion batteries, similar to what powers most laptops and smartphones. But this car used very big versions of these batteries, and it was the first EV produced at that scale to be capable of traveling more than 200 miles, which is about 320 kilometers, on a single charge. The Roadster, which had a six digit price tag and was designed to be a luxury vehicle, sold very well for what it was. And its introduction and that reception more or less sparked a new electric vehicle industry in the United States following a long fallow period of little or nothing of note, nothing that the common consumer knew about or wanted anyway. And the Roadster was definitely a desirable, aspirational product. Meant to compete with and beat high end internal combustion engine based cars according to their own standards. What I'd like to talk about today is what the EV market looks like now, headed into 2023, and what the entrance of a Chinese EV company called BYD could mean for the American and global EV markets over the next couple of years. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, China has shot at seizing a 60% share of global EV sales this year. As of the day I'm recording this, a share of Tesla stock will cost you just over $170. That's down from a high a little over a year ago, back in November of 2021, of more than $400 per share. It's at less than 50% of that high as of the middle of December 2022. This drop in market valuation is partially linked to the maybe impending recession that many people are worried we're looking down the barrel of during this, the last month of 2022, but it's also related to the, let's call them hijinks, of Tesla founder Elon Musk, who among other things has made some, for quite a few would-be Tesla buyers anyway, unpopular political and ideological comments over the past year or so, and who has carved an erratic and very public path to owning social network Twitter. Selling a lot of Tesla stock and borrowing against still more in order to afford the $44 billion price tag that he, by all indications, overpaid on. This is also partially the consequence of rumors, allegations, and lawsuits related to cultural aspects of Tesla as a company, ranging from accusations of racism baked into company culture, to reports from whistleblowers that the company is violating workers' rights, allowing dangerous and, at times, deadly mistakes through the production process because it would be too expensive to fix those mistakes, and at least one allegation of, let's say, creative accounting practices, none of which is unique to Tesla, but all of which seems to be par for the course for companies run by Musk, and which, because of how visible he makes himself, tend to also be more visible than similar accusations and blown whistles at other automobile companies, despite their, at times, similar flaws and issues. Their CEOs, their founders, are not as colorful as Musk. Though it arguably jump-started the modern U.S. electric vehicle market, Tesla is also beginning to see a lot more competition, especially from traditional automakers, most of which are spinning up their own portfolio of EVs alongside battery-making plants, rare-earth element supply chains, and other things that Tesla has sometimes angled for, sometimes invested in, but in both cases with mixed success. This is the result of these companies reading the writing on the wall as the world's governments make increasingly hardcore commitments related to emissions of the sort most automobiles still produce, but it's also the consequence of regulations that are beginning to pop up here and there, including, once again, in California, which will no longer allow the sale of new fossil fuel-powered vehicles from 2035 onward. And California is a huge, market but it's also just really inconvenient and pricey to produce varying models of cars for different states in the same country and a bunch of other states have said that they would honor california's commitment on this so it makes more sense economically for most of these companies to get ahead of this trend and start building out their ev arsenal now preparing themselves for what the world will look like in a little over a decade As a result of this arguably slow, but increasingly speedy transition, rather than just a few high-end and a few more affordable models from Tesla, car buyers in the US can now choose from an array of sedans and coupes and SUVs and even pickup trucks, including a wildly successful F-150 model made by Ford, which has made a name for itself by focusing on its capacity to engage in what's called bi-directional charging. You can use the truck's massive battery as a backup battery for your house, powering your home and everything in it for potentially days in the event of a power outage. And this capacity, alongside its other desirable properties, have led to a long wait list for would-be buyers and a large scale-up in production schedules for Ford. Car buyers also have more colors and shapes and sizes and companies to choose from when shopping for EVs these days, all of them offering slightly different takes on the standard EV promise and a few, like Toyota's revised Prius line, alongside similar, less well-known options from other brands continuing to offer the relative flexibility of plug-in hybrids, which are, at this point, electric vehicles with smaller batteries allowing them to go tens of miles, usually, rather than hundreds, on pure electricity, but as part of that trade-off, also possessing a small internal combustion engine. So the market is expanding, and it's primed to become even more competitive as incentives from the Inflation Reduction Act come into effect, which, among other things, should substantially reduce the cost of EVs produced in the United States because of programs tucked into that larger act. Those incentives will be important, because at the same time the U.S. market and the corporate entities functioning within it are spinning up for a real-deal competition in this space. Pre-existing, experienced, well-honed offerings from elsewhere are beginning to filter in to the U.S. market. That includes electric Fiats, Hondas, and Hyundai's from Italy, Japan, and Korea, respectively, but also models from less well-known, in the U.S. at least, companies like VinFast out of Vietnam, which recently shipped its first 1,000 EV SUVs to the States, NIO, a Chinese EV maker, and BYD also from China, and of particular note because of the scale the company has managed to achieve in China, the world's largest EV market, over the past few years. And I want to talk more about BYD, but before I get deeper into that company, let's talk for a moment about that biggest-in-the-world Chinese EV market where it has grown up. In October of 2022, 722,000 plug-in electric passenger and commercial vehicles were sold in China, so about three quarters of a million. For comparison, 85,920 were sold in the U.S. that month, and a cumulative 736,776 were sold in the U.S. for the whole of that year up till that point. So nearly as many EVs were sold in China in a single month October, as were sold in the U.S. for nearly the whole year, from January till October. And to be clear, that is not a criticism of the U.S. market or its shift toward plug-in electric vehicles, which has been pretty rapid, recently at least, all things considered. It's just that China made this shift earlier and more completely, and thus has more infrastructure in place, a lot more models at different price tiers available, and it's a lot more common to buy electric vehicles there. Whereas in the U.S., it's still kind of a new, novel thing that most people will think long and hard about doing. We are still several years away from that becoming the default choice here in the States. China's EV market is still growing by leaps and bounds as well, with battery electric vehicles capturing 22% of the total passenger car market and plug-in hybrids claiming another 9% in October. That same month, the U.S. was up to about 6% for all EVs and plug-in hybrids combined. Part of China's rapid growth is predicated on government policies and a decisive industry shift toward EVs in recent years. But part of what has allowed those numbers to jump so rapidly are companies like BYD, which was originally a regular gas-guzzling car company but which is backed by Berkshire Hathaway, has become the dominant EV maker in China and several times larger in terms of production compared to the second place largest EV producer in China, in part because of that investment and in part because of investments it has then made for its production capacity. It will finish up 2022 with record sales, revenue, and profitability numbers, and has an array of affordable EVs on the Chinese market to thank for that success. Its next step, though, is releasing a pair of premium offshoot brands meant to compete directly with Tesla, and those releases will coincide with its entrance onto international markets, including Japan in early 2023, Mexico later the same year, and the United States sometime in the near future though as is the case in many countries in which they don't yet sell their consumer vehicles on scale, they already sell buses, forklifts, and other commercial vehicles in the United States, having built out the base level of their vehicle-making infrastructure and apparatuses over the past handful of years. In June of 2022, BYD announced that they'd sold about 641,000 EVs in the first half of the year, which put them ahead of Tesla, earning them the moniker largest EV manufacturer in the world, at least for that sales period. BYD is so keen to keep this growth going that it has ordered six shipping vessels, each with enough capacity to carry 7,700 cars at a cost of about $710 million. That investment meant to help them avoid supply chain issues in the future as they ship a torrent of EVs to overseas markets. BYD is also the world's second largest battery manufacturer after CATL, which is also a Chinese company that specializes in lithium-ion batteries for cars and other large applications. Though BYD sells almost as many batteries as CATL in some economic quarters these days, so they could catch up to their battery-specific rivals at some point as well, dominating that space in addition to their EV market dominance. Now important to note here is that some Chinese industries are almost completely dominated by Chinese companies, and EV production is one such industry. Tesla is the fourth best-selling EV maker in the country, but beyond that, it is Chinese companies top to bottom. China favors its own, and some industries are well protected from outside influence by rules, regulations, and fees, and EVs are on that list of industries. So, while BYD has absolutely killed it in China, there is a chance in other markets competing with more and different brands and competing on a more even playing field. Because there are not the market distortions that you find in China, where some companies receive more of the government's blessings than others. Lacking those advantages, BYD might not kill it quite so much. It might even arrive in the US late enough. That the local car companies have a chance to build out their offerings and gird their loins and put up a good fight and possibly even win, carving up the EV market between themselves, rather than giving it away to a company from China. And that potentiality is even higher because of those aforementioned Buy American-style incentives that are coming into effect with the Inflation Reduction Act, which will help the on average more expensive American-built EV models to compete with cheaper Chinese models on price for the next several years at least, a sort of watered-down version of what China does for its companies back on its market. This is one facet of a larger competition between companies and the governments supporting them to claim facets of the burgeoning green economy defined at least for now by things like EVs, batteries, heat pumps, and the materials required to build these sorts of products lithium, steel, copper, and so on. Those who take a commanding lead in this space today set themselves up to own a larger chunk of the future transportation ecosystem and possibly the overall energy generation and storage and everything connected to those things ecosystems a decade or two in the future when a lot of the novelty we are muddling through right now will be the norm. So this isn't just a rush to sell a bunch of cars each year for a profit. It's a rush to claim market share with the intention of then holding and expanding on that share so that the next handful of decades, and maybe more, are locked in for your company and its various stockholders. Or if you're working for the government, to get one of your corporations in control so that you and your ideologies can shape what comes next for everybody else. China currently has a commanding lead across essentially every aspect of this new paradigm, from solar panels to EV battery production to mining and processing, and even building relationships with overseas owners of some tricky-to-get mineral resources, and the capacity to then process those resources But other countries are picking up the pace, passing new regulations and incentives to keep their own homegrown corporations in the game, and to do what they can to avoid being just completely bowled over by China, despite its fairly commanding, so far at least, head start. I'd like to recommend today is called The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor by Mark Schatzker. This is a truly interesting book about food, but in particular processed food and the flavors, the flavorings that have been developed that have enabled the modern processed food industry. And what I mean by that is that essentially all processed food to varying degrees, if it did not have added flavors, things that are often noted on ingredients labels as natural flavorings, which is technically true, but they are natural flavorings made in the lab almost always. But if those things didn't exist, these foods would not taste like what it seems like they should taste like because the processing that's involved strips away all of that in order to get different things like the right amount of fat, the right amount of sugar, the right texture, the right color, all of the things that have been shown to sell really well. And then the flavoring components try to reintroduce that stuff that is stripped away while also augmenting it in such a way that we get not necessarily always addicted to it though in some cases that's a side effect, but definitely find it appealing and then come to associate those sorts of flavors with that sort of fat and sugar payoff. So the snack food that this book is named after is an excellent example of exactly what we're talking about here. But this goes beyond just Doritos and other bagged snacks. This is something that happens with even very natural unprocessed seeming things that because of the way the modern food industry works end up being processed anyway because it's just a whole lot cheaper and in some cases better by some metrics at least to reprocess them and add that flavor back in later and there are some positive consequences for that and then there are some unfortunate negative consequences as well now if any of that sounds interesting to you consider picking up a copy of the dorito effect by mark You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other work at understandery.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Colin Wright on YouTube and Facebook. And I'm on a bunch of those other new networks as well, like Mastodon and such. You can find links to those at Colin.io. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.